week I was thinking about how all of us here, uh, all of us either have been or are presently or will be um, disappointed by someone that we have placed our hope and our, placed our faith in. There's, uh, there's going to be a time when that is certainly going to occur inside of our life. And it doesn't matter who it is. It could be a parent. It could be a spouse. It could be, I'm ringing a little bit. Can you help me out a little bit, brother? Um, it, it could be a spouse. It could be um, a, a teacher. It could be a pastor. Uh, it doesn't matter who it is so much, the person to whom we placed our faith in, uh, inevitably, uh, we will be hurt by them. We will be let down in some way, uh, shape, or form. Now, this is true historically for all of us in, in, as individuals, but it's also true historically for all of mankind. You know, there's something inside of us. There's an, this innate uh, desire within us to look to someone else, a leader or a politician or a king or a hero, whoever it is, to, to come and to be able to rescue us when we find ourselves in very difficult and sometimes even what we would term impossible situations. And there's this desire to be rescued from that. And we're placing our faith in other people. And when it doesn't happen and when we're disappointed, we usually respond in one of two ways. Either one, we, we either place, we find somebody else to place our faith in until we're hurt by them. And then we place it in someone else and we, it goes on and goes on and goes on. Or what we do is we just decide, hey, listen, I'm skeptical of everyone and everything. I'm just not going to place my hope or my trust in anyone at all. And when you find yourself there, you find yourself completely helpless or hopeless in a hopeless world, in a helpless world as well. You know, in the Old Testament, in the book of I, or in the Old Testament, there are uh, a group of books that are referred to as the major prophets. They include Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And they're called the major prophets not because they're more important than some of the other prophetical books, but they're called and they're referred to as the major prophets primarily because of the length of the books. They're very long books. They're, they're, they're full volumes. But the reason I bring this up is because this particular series of books deals with this very issue. Each one of them in a different facet deal with this subject of having hope and more specifically having hope in the midst of impossible circumstances. Now, that's true for all the books, but especially the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is made up of approximately 66 chapters. Again, it's a, it's a very large book. And you, if you had to, you could divide that book up into three different parts. The very first part in chapters 1 through 35, that primarily deals with doom and gloom. It is written, it consists of poetry and prophecy, and it speaks about the coming ultimate judgment of God that will come in judgment of all of those who refuse to place their hope in God. Now, the next section of the book, which rests right in the middle, it's only four chapters long. It includes chapters 36 through 39. Now, this isn't written in prophecy or in poetry, but rather it's a, it's a historical narrative. It tells a story about a specific historical event that took place, specifically the Assyrians' siege of the city of Jerusalem. And then the very last part, major section of the book, uh, includes chapters 40 through 66. And in this, he goes, the author goes back to writing in poetry and prophecy again, but instead of dealing with doom and gloom, they deal with hope, the subject of hope in the midst of impossible circumstances and impossible times. And so what's interesting is when you begin to actually study through the book, you find out, though, that this hope that he speaks of is not some mere emotion. 
And it's just not some mere kind of subjective type idea. But instead, what it is, is it's actually a person. The hope that he speaks of is a person. And that hope is revealed in the beginning of the book as the Messiah. Now, the word Messiah in the Old Testament just simply means the anointed one. And it was a, fr- it was a term that was used to describe the kings of Israel. They were the messiahs of the land. They were the anointed ones set to lead God's people. But this Messiah was not any Messiah. This Messiah was the Messiah that would come. He would be like a Messiah and a king that had never come before. And he would not disappoint like all the others had before him. But on the last part, in that last section of the book, what's interesting is that hope, which was referred to as the Messiah in the first half, is now referred to as the suffering servant. Now, when you think of a king, you don't often think of a suffering servant, but this is the picture of the hope that Isaiah gives us of the hope that's ultimately to come. Now, this morning, we find ourselves five weeks out for Christmas. You can't stand it, can you? I think our Christmas shopping is almost all done. Isn't that amazing? I took some pepper spray out and sprayed about 20 people in the show. I'm just kidding. Uh, Crazy people. If that was you, please don't say you come here, all right? All right, it's just but crazy, but... You people get so excited about Christmas coming. And for years now, I've really wanted to do kind of a Christmas series leading up to Christmas. We say that Jesus is the reason for the season, and then we preach about everything else. Uh, and, and I really wanted to concentrate on Christ um, in, in the next couple of weeks, which we try to do, of course, every week. But what I'm going to do is, beginning with next week, I'm going to begin preaching a series of sermons on four passages found in the back part of Isaiah, the latter part of Isaiah, which are referred to as servant songs. And all of these are prophecies referring to this suffering Messiah, this suffering servant that was to come some 700 years in the future from that particular day. So beginning next week, I'm going to impact each one of those until Christmas. But today, of course, I know you're wondering and you're asking, thank you for asking, is, well, what are we going to do today? Well, today what I'd like to do is give you an introduction to the book, a more full introduction to the book. So that as we begin to walk through this particular book over the next couple of weeks, you really truly understand what the authorial intent of these texts were and what the purpose that God had in intending to write these things down. So this morning, I want to begin just simply with this. I want to begin by talk, giving a little bit more background and context of the book. And then what we're going to do is, once I finish that, is we're going to actually look at that historical portion that I talked to you about that rests right in the middle of the two major sections. And we're going to look at what happened in chapter 36 and chapter 37. Now, here's why I chose to do it. First of all, introductions to books are always very difficult, but I think that they're absolutely vital to do so that you understand what the book is all about. And it's important to understand what we're preaching. Say amen, all right, and what the Word of God says. But here in verses in chapters 36 and 37, I believe we have an illustration of the theme of the entire book. Hope in the midst of impossible times. Hope in the midst of impossible times. And what this text tells us is that hope has come. Now, what I want to do is let me give you a little bit of background and context first of all. Now, the whole book really spans the reign of five different kings. It begins with the, the, the very end of King Uzziah's reign, uh, a great king, a godly king, one of their best kings, and he had, reign, he had uh, one of their best kings, and he had reigned for approximately 52 years. Now, he came to the throne, he came to rule 200 years after Solomon, the reign of Solomon. Now, that's important. Because between those 200 years, things did not go well. In fact, Israel, the nation of Israel, began to really spiral down. And the reason for that primarily had to do with many of their leaders turning to idol worship. Okay? And so what happens is when Uzziah comes back, 
he comes back and he calls the people back to repentance to God. He calls them back. He, he kicks out all of, the, uh, all of the false prophets. He kicks out all of these, uh, this false uh, Baal wor- or all these uh, idol worship. And he calls the people to come and believe and place their faith fully and completely in God. Now, things are not only changing during this time in the nation of Israel. They're also changing around them and about them. What we find is their neighbors, which are at the southwest of them, Egypt, who had been in power for many, many, many years before this point, had been the primary power, are now beginning to wane and begin to diminish in their influence and their power. But another neighbor is now beginning to become stronger. To the northeast, what you find is you find a a group of people called the Assyrians, and they're during this time beginning to gain strength. So Uzziah, in his wisdom before God, sees that there's an imbalance of power, kind of a vacuum of power. So what he decides to do is he decides that he is going to strengthen Israel as as much as he possibly can. They fortify cities, they fortify uh, their own armies, and they get prepared to be able to defend themselves. So at this point, what's interesting is Uzziah dies after 52 years of reigning. And he's replaced by a son by the name of Jothan, who reigned for a period of 16 years. Now, once you've had somebody reigning for that great, that great a king, it's hard to fill those kind of shoes. And so what we find is Jothan, Jothan tried to do all he could. He tried to follow in his steps with God, but things just immediately begin to kind of fall apart. After his reign, his son Ahaz, King Ahaz came to the throne, and he reigned for some 16 years as well. And Ahaz was a bad dude. Not a bad dude as in a good dude, but a bad dude as in a really bad dude. And the reason is because he began to follow in his forefathers' ways, and he began to bring all those idols that Uzziah had kicked out, and he began to bring them back in. And here was a man, as we're going to see, he begins to place his faith and his hopes in all of these pagan lands and these pagan gods, but he doesn't place his faith in the one and true God. Well, he reigns for 16 years, and then finally Hezekiah comes and reigns. The good thing about Hezekiah is he is just like his great-grandfather, Uzziah. He's a godly man, and he tries to call the nation back to faith in God and wants to jettison all of this idol worship during this particular time. But by that time, guess what? The, 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 the harm and the destruction had already been done. Because during these particular years, Assyria became so powerful that what they did is they began to just wipe everybody out. In fact, in 722 B.C., they wipe out the, the, whole northern, the, the whole northern kingdom at that particular point, just wipes them out and, and takes them into, it just puts them into exile. In fact, by this particular time of chapter 36 and 37, Assyria has taken over all of the nations all the way around them, and now they are only eight miles outside of the Jerusalem gates. And at this point, at chapter 36, what we find is they have now taken 185,000 Assyrian soldiers, and they are around the city of Jerusalem. They have already taken captive 200,000 of the Israelites, and, now, and they've also, also captured over 42 cities at this time. Now, when they surround this city, all hope is lost for, for King Hezekiah and for his people. And the reason is, is because they don't have the military might to fight these guys. They are in big, big trouble. In fact, the reason that they're being besieged at this time is the army is just resting around them, waiting them out until, guess what? They ultimately starve to death. In fact, one of the guys calls out to him and says, listen, if you stay in that place, he goes, all you're going to be eating is your own dung and, your own, and drinking your own urine. 
That's how severe the situation was that they were in. It was an impossible situation. They couldn't escape. They couldn't fight their way out of it. And they couldn't talk their way out of it. If they were to open up the gates and if they were to try to try to make a treaty to the Assyrian, they had ticked Assyrians at that time. They would have ticked them off so much they would have come in and butchered every man, woman, and child. They were in a position, an impossible situation. And so what we do is in the beginning of chapter 36, we find that Sennacherib, who was the king of Assyria sends his right-hand man, somebody who is referred to here as Rebshekah. Now, that's not his first name. That's actually his position. It actually means to be a cup-bearer. So this is Rebshekah's, uh, 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 excuse me, um, uh, Sennacherib's right-hand man. So he comes, and he begins to speak. And he's outside the city walls of Jerusalem. And here are 185,000 troops besieging the city. And he's yelling out and he's having a conversation with those that are within that city. And what he does is he basically preaches a sermon, a sermon that you and I can learn a great deal about. So what, with that said, what I want to do is I want to just focus on three things this morning as we work through as an outline through these two chapters. The first thing we want to see, and this is very brief, is we want to see we want to see we see that there is a question proposed. There is a question proposed, and here's the question: Who will you place your hope? Who it should be? Who will you place your clo- your hope in? Excuse me. Now, now here's here's what we find in the Word of God. Look, if you will, in verse four. And Reb Shekha, remember he's right, he's Sennacherib's right hand man. He says, "Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria: On what do you rest this trust of yours?" So basically what he's saying is, hey, listen, you're in this situation. You know you're in a possible situation. Now, what are you going to do about it? Who are you going to look to bail you out? That sounds familiar, doesn't it? You've got yourself in a mess. Now, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to to rest in your own power? Are you going to rest in the power of your surrounding nations, maybe the Egyptians? Are you going to trust in Hezekiah? Who are you ultimately going to trust in? Now, here's what's interesting. The guy that's actually saying all of this, he's a pagan. But God uses him to speak truth to God's people. Isn't that sad when God uses the pagans to speak truth to reprimand God's people? And that's exactly what is ultimately happening here. But he says, right now in the midst of the situation when you're in, where are you going to place your hope? Where are you going to place your trust? That was the question for Hezekiah. It was the question for the people there. And guess what? It is the question that every man, woman, and child throughout the world, throughout history must ask. Where will you place your hope? And that's your hope even for you as believers, for some of you who are believers this morning, where will you place your hope? When things begin to fall apart, when there's nothing else to hold on to, where do you turn? Where's your primary hope placed? But not only when things are falling apart, but what about when things are going well? Where do you place your hope for joy? Where do you place your hope? Where do you look to for for direction? Where do you look for, for for fulfillment, for meaning, for provision? And, of course, for help. Where do you turn to when you absolutely have to have these things? Who do you turn to or what do you turn to to be fulfilled? So that's the question that we see posed here. And it's a question we're posing for you this morning, a question proposed. Secondly, what we see is a problem revealed. Now, look with me in verse 5, if you will. He says, do you think that mere words are strategy in power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the land of any man who leans on it. 
such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all who trust in him. So now what he's doing is here's this pagan king. He's outside the walls and he's just taking them through and he's giving them different options of things that they can place their hope in. And he says, hey, are you placing your hope in your own military might and your own military strategies to get you out of this? The reason he's doing this is because he's mocking him. Because very obviously, this isn't going to help them at all. And then he says, hey, what about the king down in Egypt? What about them? Where they're almost completely kaputs at this particular time. It would be ridiculous for them to put their faith in them. A little bit long down the line, he says, even in verse 14, he says, thus says God, he says, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Now, what we see here is very clearly this. We see what their problem had been throughout all of this time. God's people, listen to me, God's people are called to place their faith and their hope completely into one person, and that is God. That is it. No one else and nothing else. But this is exactly what, the, what, the Jew, what, what uh, God's people were guilty of. When we begin to go through this book, we find out that many a times they sought hope in foreign kings and in foreign gods. Whenever a new power would come up like Egypt, immediately they would go and try to make some kind of treaty with them in order for them to come in to protect them. But guess what? When they passed away, a new, a new, uh, excuse me, a new empire came up, the Assyrians, and guess what? They turned their back on this guy and went back to the Assyrians and tried to make a deal with them. This is what Ahaz did. And then eventually when Assyria went down and Babylon comes to power, he changes his mind through Assyria, tries to go to them in order for them to be secure as a nation and find protection. There's only one big problem. God had strictly commanded for them not to do this. He had told them, he says, listen, I'm your provider. I, you are to place your faith, your hope in me and me alone. That's it, not these pagan nations. Because here's what would have to happen. In order for them to, to get protection from these nations, they would have to become subservient to these nations and serve them. And God says, you were, you were called to serve me and me alone. And so what they would do is each year, they would have to take all their finances and they would have to pay these enormous tributes to the king for this protection. And it was incredibly bearing and taxing on the people themselves. And not only that, in order to, to have the agreement of their protection, they also had to take on their gods. And this is something that Ahaz had done. Hezekiah's father, King, King Ahaz, he actually went to the Assyrians and said, listen, we want you to protect us. We want to have, think, give us your gods and we'll begin to worship your gods as well. So they brought those gods back into, uh, into the nation of Israel and they begin to worship them once again. But they had not only placed their faith in foreign kings and foreign gods, they had also placed their hope in leaders, in their leaders. Now, look, God had given them kings to lead them, for them to entrust themselves to a certain level in but there's a time, don't you guys know this? I hope you know this. There's a time when you have to say, I can no longer follow that leader. Are you with me? And what had happened is God had called them to follow the king, but only as he followed the rule of God. Once they kept, once Ahaz began to move away from God, they were under no more um, restriction to follow him, to follow his way and to support him uh, anymore. Why? Because they only followed him as he followed God. Can I just say this? There are people that I talk to that are looking for different churches and they're talking. It's interesting to hear their story. But sometimes people will sit there and say, you know, I've been out of church for 20, 30 years. And I'll say, why? But they'll say, because a preacher hurt me. I was following his leadership. He fell and that was it for me. I just couldn't play. I just couldn't, I just couldn't go and have anything to do with God or the church anymore. Brother, you're putting way too much hope in a man. Way too much hope in a man. Look, we have got leadership here, and you have to have leadership or you're going to have chaos. Isn't that right? 
And God has set apart elders and pastors in this church for you to look over your soul and for you to be able to submit to men that you have set apart yourself, okay? But here's the deal. Once this man or any of these other men, once they begin to go down the wrong path in disobedience of God or they begin to preach what is contrary to the word of God, you know what you say? Thanks, but no thanks. We can't follow you anymore. We'll submit to you as you follow God, but once you no longer follow God, listen, our hope is not in you. Our hope is in God alone, okay? Now, so they placed their faith in foreign kings and in foreign gods. They sought hope in their leaders. And then notice this, finally, they sought hope in themselves. This is what we find through the whole context of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, in one portion of this, uh, of this book, begins to see that when the people begin to feel threatened, they begin to build up their military might and they begin to build up their walls and their defenses. And as they begin to build these things up, Isaiah recognizes that their faith is not in their protector God. Their faith is in their defenses themselves. And he calls them to it. He says, listen, you think that these walls can ultimately protect you? Don't place your faith in that. Reserve it for God alone, okay? And so, so these are the things that the people were doing. So we see that it is revealed. And so what, what Rebshakeh, this cupbearer, is doing is he's going through all the things that historically that they have placed their hope and faith in. And he says, ain't gonna work, ain't gonna work, ain't gonna work, all right? Now, what he does is he comes back and he gives us this great expression here. And I think that this applies to all of them. In verse 6, he says, Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is the Pharaoh king of Egypt to all who trust in him. Now, he's referring to their faith in their trust that they had placed in foreign kings and foreign gods. But let me, make, let me help you see something here. But what he says here is enlightening. What he says is you're placing your faith in this man, but let me tell you what you're doing. You're looking for support, you're looking for stability, and you're placing your weight on this man, but what you're doing is you're placing your weight, your hand, on a broken reed of a staff. It's like a cane. If it's broken, and you, it may support you to a certain period of time, for a certain period of time, but when you place your whole weight on that, what's eventually is going to happen? It's not going to help you, it's going to hurt you. And he says that's what all these things are. Everything that you and I choose to play our faith and our hope in and our trust in above God is nothing more than a fractured reed, a fractured cane. We're pressing. It may work for a little while, but eventually, ultimately, it's going to fracture and you're going to be hurt. Now, that's great words from this pagan uh, commander. Now, the question is, look, if none of these things can really, that they, they can place their hope in, then who? Then what? Where do we place our hope then? What is the solution? Well, the solution is actually provided for us. The solution is to put our hope in God alone. To put our hope, to put our faith in God alone for everything and for all things. Now, there's something interesting. I told you up to this point that Reb Sheka, when he's calling out to this wall and he's, he's speaking to the leaders, he's, he, everything he says pretty much is true, except when he gets down to verse 18. Because now what he's doing is he's saying another thing uh, that they should not put their faith in. And notice this, verse 18, he says, Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his hand out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? He says, Where are the gods of Shephravim? He says, Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. Now, this is where uh, the uh-oh happens, 
okay? He was doing fine this whole time. He was preaching truth. I mean, times for you and I say, amen, we don't put our faith in that. But then he turns to them and he says, and don't you think that you could put your faith in your God and think that he has the power to rescue you? You see that? Now, the reason he's saying that is because they defeated all these other nations. And they all came up and they, they kept carrying their little gods around, their little brass gods or gold gods or silver gods, and they begin to march them around and say, our God will save us, and they just wiped them completely out. And so what he's saying is, if the rest of these gods could not save you out of this impossible situation in which you find yourself in, he goes, then how do you think your God is going to do it? He can't. Well, for God, those are fighting words, okay? He has crossed the line. And God sits back and says, listen, it's no longer between you two. Now it's between me and your king, Sennacherib. And so what happens at this particular point is we see that there's going to be a radical change in Hezekiah and what he ultimately does. And then beginning in verse 37, what we see is we begin to see uh, how he puts his faith fully in God. First of all, we see that it begins with godly sorrow. See, what happens immediately after he says all this, how is your God going to save them? Immediately, those leaders that heard this truth go to the palace, go to the king, and they tell him everything that is said. Then we pick up in verse 37 in verse 1. He says, as soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and he covered himself with sackcloth and he went into the house of the Lord. Now, folks, this is unusual. Listen, he's the king. He doesn't, he doesn't humble himself before anybody, but what is he doing? He's humbling himself. When you take ashes and you take sackcloth and you bound yourself in them, what that's demonstrating is, listen, this is a broken man. This is a miserable man. And he's not miserable simply because he, he, he's scared that he got caught or he's scared that, uh, that, that, that what is about to happen. What he's ultimately broken over is his sin and nation of Israel's sin against God. That's where he is broken. And so what he's coming to is there's this, you know, there's many people that I talk to and we sit there and they say, brother, uh, you know, I, I, failed. I, I cheated on my wife or, you know, I cheated against my husband or I cheated on my taxes. But nine times out of 10, 9.99 times, probably, probably uh, chance of the time, what people will sit there, the only reason they're telling me is because they got caught. And most of the time what they're doing is they're sorrow, but they're sorrow because they got caught. They're not sorrowful because they truly sinned against a great and mighty God. This man is broken over that. He realizes that, that, that even though he's trying to leave the nation back, that right now they're just really feeling the fallout of all the times that they had placed their faith in everything else, and he comes before God, and he's broken. There's a godly sorrow there. The second thing that we see in this particular text is that he rightly placed his hope. Now, as soon as he hears these things, what does he do? Does he go out and does he try to find another king that he can place his faith in? Does he sneak a guy out underneath the wall to go to the Egyptian king? Does he sit there and try to strategize? No. This is how we know that this man is truly changed. He brightly placed his hope where? In God. He sends a messenger to whom? The prophet Isaiah. Why would he send it to the prophet Isaiah? Because Isaiah is God's spokesperson. He wants to know what God has to say about this. So he sends a messenger to Isaiah. And then in, in verse 6, Isaiah said this to them, Say to your master, thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have, have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Now, what God's saying is, I'm going to take care of this. Don't you worry, I'm going to take care of this. And so we'll, we'll see more of the specifics in just a minute. 
But here's what I want you to notice. There's the third part of him coming and placing his faith in God and his hope in God. Not only a godly sorrow, not only rightly placing his hope in the, in the proper person, but also a proper repentance. We see a real turning from sin here. Where do we see it? Look at verse 17. I love this because he doesn't just allow Isaiah to pray on his behalf. What he does is he can't help but to pray to God. It's interesting to me because there's times when people come and they're broken, they got caught, or their life is falling apart, and they'll go, oh, brother, just pray to God for me. Just pray to God for me. And I'll sit there and say, brother, I'll pray on your behalf. I've been praying on your behalf. But brother, until you start praying, I don't know how much is going to change. You need to call out God with a broken heart yourself. That's what you need to do. And so what Isaiah does is he, or excuse me, what, what Hezekiah does is he doesn't just leave it to Isaiah the prophet. He goes to the temple and he begins to pray face down before God and he begins to pray out before God. And notice what he says in verse 17. He says, incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your ears, O Lord, and see and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O, o, o Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. You know what I love about what he does here? He recognizes not only why the rest of them were wiped away, but he realizes what needs to change for them not to be wiped away. Because he understands their nation were just like the others. They had set up their own false gods, worshiped the own false gods, put their hope in all those false gods. And what he's saying right near is he recognizes these aren't even gods anyway. He goes, these are just images that we made up for ourselves with our own hands out of wood and stone. There is no God but you, God. Now, what I love about this is, is, is a picture of true repentance because here's, here's how repentance works. Many people will come and when nothing else works, when all their little gods don't work and they crumble on them, oftentimes they don't let go of them. But what they do is they come before God and they say, God, I'm going to cling to my idols, but God, now it's too much for them. I need your help. And while they're still living in their sin, worshiping all the other stuff and all the other people, they turn and want God to be able to bail them out and God doesn't work that way. You have to come before God in the midst of the impossible situation that you found yourself in and you have to come to him and say, I'm not going to cling to anything else. Man, that's what got me into this in the first place. God, what I need to do is get rid of those, repent from those things and come to you and cast myself down on you fully and completely, properly repenting myself in my hope placed in you and God, I just need you to be able to save me. And that's exactly what he did. And the Bible says in verse 20, he says, And now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms in the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Look, if you need saving, whatever it is in your life today, there's only one person to call out to, and that's a mighty God. That's it. Now, let me ask you a question. How do you think this ends up? Before even looking, how do you think this ends up? How many of you believe that at this particular point, with the brokenness of this man, that he calls out to God? And what, we're going to flip the page, and what we're going to find out those 185,000 soldiers break down the walls and they massacre all of them. How many, how many of you choose that, A? No, why? Because you know the God of this Bible. The Bible says that God performs a miracle in the, in the midst of the impossible. In verse 36, notice if you will with, with me. They go to bed that night. Here's what happens. And the angel of the Lord went out and he struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, there were all dead bodies. 
You know what I love about this? People often love to say, well, how do you do it? You mean in one night, that night, they went to bed, they woke up, 185,000 soldiers were complete, just laying all over each other, completely dead. God just wiped them out. And what I love about God is God just sits there and says, look, the point is not how I do it. The point is that I did it. I am the one. You don't have to know how I'm going to do it. You just know that I will do it. That's his point of this thing. That's what the attention is drawing to. And so he comes and he says, okay, here's the deal. They wipe out 180. Can you imagine waking up the next day? after being in sackcloth and ashes and repenting of God and waking up and just seeing nothing but bird feet all over the place? That's all you see. And they've completely been wiped out. Now, here's, here's the thing. Here's three things that I see in this text of Scripture. First of all, let me say this. Three things that, that are evident in this story. First of all, we see, and see if you can see this with me, an impossible situation. Can you see an impossible situation in this? In this? I can't. An impossible situation meaning there's nothing that they could do to get themselves out of that pickle. Are you guys with me? Number two, a decisive repentance. Did you see that in that text? A decisive repentance. A guy that sat there and said, man, we've been doing it all wrong. God, we're going to turn from these idols. We're going to place our faith in you and ask for your mercy and for your grace. Did you notice that? And there's a third thing. At the very end, we see it in chapter 37, a gracious deliverance. These people didn't deliver this or didn't deserve this. But God came by his mercy and his grace and he reached out, and he saved those, listen to me, that were incapable of saving themselves. Why? Because they were good people? No. But because God was good and God was loving. Now, how do we apply this? Let me just take a few minutes at the very end here. How do we apply this? All this setting up and setting everything up, how, how do we apply this accurately, faithfully? Because I believe that if I was reading through that, and if you were actually listening, what you were probably doing is you were sitting there going, this is speaking to me. This is speaking to me. Uh, Brother Mike, um, uh, um, I am in an impossible situation right now, or at least one that I feel is an impossible situation. I've done everything, and I can't seem to get it to work, and I'm in this possible situation. I need God to work in the same way for me. I need him to work in that same way. I need him to come and to deliver me because nothing else seems to work. Well, is that the appropriate application? Because what I'm saying is where we normally think of it is in a temporal application, do we not? of what's going on in our lives right now here on this earth, our aches, our pains, our difficulties, our tragedies, our broken relationships, all those things that are bugging us now. Now, is there appropriate application of this text by the author Isaiah and also by God to that kind of temporal application? Let me say this. I think there is. I think it's secondary, but I think there is. Let me explain something for a minute. If God is going to deliver you out of the mess that you're in. You have to first recognize that you're in the mess because of you. Now, I know that sounds harsh, but I need you to hear what I'm saying this morning. I'm not suggesting that every difficulty or every problem or every, every bad situation that we find ourselves in is because of bad decisions that we've made. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying what I have found in 15, 17 years of ministry what I have found is the majority of the gripes and pains that I have and the inflictions that I have and the impossible situations that I have found myself in and the, the, as well as other people are things that I have placed myself in and others have placed themselves in. Here's why. I failed to place my hope in God. I placed my hope in other people and other things. I was an idolater and I was let down. Let me give you just kind of an example of some, some of this, how this works. You know, I, I was reminded just in the last couple of weeks of moms, and, you know, it's interesting to talk to other parents, and I love to look at other folks that have already had little kids and grown them, and I ask them tons and tons of questions. Hey, how'd you deal with this? How'd you deal with this? 
And some of my friends that I've seen that are older and their kids are older, um, they, they will tell me, they say, man, the hardest thing we've ever done right now is, is our kids leaving the home. Or some people say, or leaving the home or not following God. And let me just tell you something. I can't imagine. That, that has got to be unbelievably difficult. But as I begin to share with some of these, it's amazing how some of them can handle it and some can't handle it. And those that can't seem to handle it seem to be falling apart completely and utterly and just sit there and say, I can't believe this. I just, and it almost seems like they cease living. Some of them can't come to church. Some of them can't read their Bible. Some of them can't be used of God anymore. At least they think they're, they're just, just, just kind of like a blob of existence because they're so let down of what happened with their ultimate children. Again, let me be very sensitive. Nothing more heartbreaking than that. I get that. I understand that. But here's what I often say is heartbreak may have been brought because of what your child has done, but the greatest heartbreak, the greatest heartbreak was placed on you for yourself. Because I find that parents oftentimes, they place so, all their hopes and their dreams upon their little kids. And they dream and they sit there and go, man, they've got to. My whole life is dedicated for them becoming the proper, appropriate people, the great people that they are. And if they don't, guess what? There's no hope in their life. There's no hope in their life. So what the Bible says is the same exact thing. Many of these situations, the reason they are impossible situations is because we've got ourselves in there. Because of our idolatrous relationship with our own children... Because we've loved them in a way that God had never intended us to be able to love them over God and God himself, we become useless and we can't get out of it. You know, it happens the same exact thing in the, in, in, in the area of finances. Some of you are going through this. You know, there are people, everybody knows we're in a stinky economy, right? I mean, everywhere you go, stinky economy, stinky economy. Okay, we get it, stinky economy, right? And there are some people who have lost jobs. And that's a horrible thing. And if you're a brother and sister of Christ, that's like, man, we'd love to come around you and just pray that God is going to provide the right job for you. And we've seen God do that time and time again in this church. I praise God for that. But there are some people, man, that are taking to this the point that it is literally the end of the earth. Brother Mike, do you know that I've got to sell? We're probably going to have to sell the house. We're probably going to have to sell the car. We're probably going to have to sell the boat. We're probably going to have to sell the jet ski. We're probably going to have to sell the lake house. We're probably, and I'm just sitting there going, you And what I've seen is part of what they never asked to be fired or to be laid off, to be laid off. And there is going to be stress and there is going to be pain in that. But because of their idolatry and their love for those things, they're in a situation that they can't even get out of now. And it's all because they created it because of the love of stuff, of having a greater love for their stuff and it being an idol than for their ultimate God. Last thing. Same exact thing is in a relationship. You know, that's really the elephant in the room. Because I think when I said that, I think the majority of the people in here, especially married couples, are probably sitting back going, man, this is so true. I'm in a marriage that I just can't get out of. We're in a situation that we can't get out of. Here's a problem. And and, and listen, I understand that marriage is hard. I, I am in one right now, all right? By the grace of God. And remaining one by the grace of God. But here's what, here's the deal. You've got to come to the, the point that part of the misery that you have within that marriage is your fault. It's your fault. You say, well, what a minute. I'm not the one going out. I'm not the one cheating everything. I said, but here's the deal. That's going to bring great hurt. But there is a time that goes way too far, and I've seen people who are way too destroyed over difficulties. Even the, I know, I'm, I'm trying to say this clearly. They have gone to a point that they are completely and utterly without hope, and the only reason they are without hope is because they had placed all of their faith and hope in that relationship and in that marriage. And sometimes I'll sit there and say and go through the word of God and say, you know, first of all, you guys have to recognize that biblically you should have never been married to begin with. 
I'll have to take them through the word of God. And now what they want to do is look at that and go, hey, I should have never been married. I'm out of here. See that? Should have never been married. That's not why I bring it before them. I'm bringing it before them because I'm sitting there saying, and they'll say, I didn't know. I didn't know this. This is new news to me. I said, that doesn't get you off the hook because here's the deal. Had you had placed your hope fully in God, you would have wanted to know what God said about marriage before you placed your hope in another to make you happy. You're in this situation because of the idolatry of your marriage. That's why you're in this situation. Your hope is not placed in your husband. Your hope, ultimate hope, place is not hoped in husband or in spouse. It is placed in God and in God alone. So if you ask me, is there a temporal application for this particular passage? I will tell you, I believe there is. But... I say that it's secondary. I don't believe that those are the reasons why this particular text was written. I believe the reason that this particular text and the whole book of Isaiah was written was to let us know that there is a much greater problem than our family, our friends, our finances, and whatever else. The greatest problem that you and I face is that the judgment, the righteous judgment of God is bearing down on every man, woman, and child because of their sin. Just like Hezekiah and their people, just as they found themselves underneath the judgment of God in the ultimate destruction, in inevitable destruction, it is the same exact place that every person who has not repented of their sin and placed faith in Jesus Christ finds themselves in this morning. And let me tell you something. There's no way out of it. You can't dig under it. You can't go over it. You can't go through it. You can't be a good enough person to be able to get by. You can't come to church enough to get by. You can't join enough churches to get by. You can't sign enough cards to get by. What it has to come is you have to cry out before God and say, God, what a sinner I am. And I'm under the judgment of God because of me, not because of me. I'm underneath the judgment of God because of my sin. You say, how do you get out of that? Through godly sorrow. God, I recognize what I've done. I've worshipped the creation, not the creator. God, I now place my faith fully in you, in who? In his son, Jesus Christ, the hope that was to come, the hope that has already come. How do we place our faith in God? We, 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 sit, we turn to him and we understand that Jesus Christ became our substitute, that the wrath of God poured out on him for all those to whom he would save. When you repent of your sin, you place your faith in him. You say, I need to escape the coming wrath. How do I do it? And Jesus says, I did it for you. Believe in me and accept me by faith. And finally, what do you do? You repent. It takes a proper repentance. He turned and he no longer clings to those things. He no longer clings to those idols. Your God can no longer be your spouse. Your God can no longer... Here's the, here's the trouble with this. There are some, there's one half of the crew that's sitting here today going, man, I'm in that pit. The other half of the crew is completely oblivious to what I'm preaching about. Because they're sitting there and they are... Man, it's going good. They're leaning on that crutch. They're sitting there going, hey, man, everything's going okay with me and my girlfriend. Everything's going great with me and my idol, me and my job, me and my house, me and my family. Everything's going good. I'm loving it. And I just want to bring you back once again to what he says. He says, behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. So it's, number one, a warning to all those who right now who are believers in Jesus Christ who are trusting in other things above God. Repent, turn, or you're going to get hurt. Number two, you who are in that pit, 
you are who are in that pit, and maybe it's a temporal thing, you're a believer, but you know that you're recognize that you're in that pit because you placed yourself there, because you've raised other gods before the one true God. And then there are some of you who sit there, man, you just don't know God, man. You've never been born again. And today at this point, it's time for you to get repent and believe in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, this morning, we're doing something else. Guys, you can come out. We're going to sing a song. What I want you to do this morning is I just, Jonathan, I just want you guys to go.